0: Uh, but please, if you haven't already, open the Word of God to the Book of Ephesians, chapter two. If you need or are in need of a Bible, please just stick your hand up, and our ushers will make sure that you, you get one. Uh, but today we're we're talking about, as David mentioned, the subject of conversion, and I'm reminded of this story uh, that Charles uh, told of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was known uh, as the Prince of Preachers. Uh, this man was a pastor in the 19th century in London. He uh, By the age of 19, he was pastoring a 2,000-member church. Um, he was converted about 15 years old, uh, maybe even a little younger. But at 16, he started pastoring. People were clamoring. Uh, churches would be filled to capacity. They would be outside the, the, the windows just hoping to be able to hear from, what, uh, from his lips what God was saying to and through him. Uh, by the time that he uh, was in full throes of ministry as a young man, his sermons were being published all over the world. In the English speaking world. And this is in the 19th century. So that's saying something. Uh, he had started over 2,000 different ministries during his lifetime. He was an extremely um, gifted man of God, a great preacher. And uh, he tells the story that he was walking down the street of London one night when a, a man who was extremely drunk comes up to him and he says, Pastor Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon, in his only very Spurgeon esque way, he says, You must be one of my converts because you certainly aren't the Lord's. And his point was, is that you might think you pray to prayer. You might uh, believe that you have given your life to Jesus, but your life is not a reflection of a, a person who is truly born again by the Spirit of God. Because you're not fighting your sin you 're not turning away from it you 're not embracing righteousness, and you just look like a convert that has has prayed something to follow me, but the reality is, is you 're truly not following jesus and what Spurgeon was noting there and highlighting was that we can have an appearance of Christ a follower, but is our heart truly been changed by the gospel of christ that 's the subject we 're talking about today is this this uh, mark of a healthy church and and what that means is is we've seen in the last several weeks that there are several different marks of a healthy church body in other words these are the non negotiables of christ's followers according to the word of god that we must extend the word of truth which means preaching that we must go to the word of god and let the word of god dictate to us what it means not us dictate to the word of god what we want it to mean we call that biblical theology And last week, we looked at what the gospel truly is and expanded it and understood that it's greater than we've ever understood it to be. It's not just praying a prayer and following Jesus. It's the idea of of telling the truth of who Jesus is and yielding the entirety of our lives to follow him by repenting of our sins, believing in Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and that he has inaugurated the kingdom of God, and we are to live lives of holiness in light of that fact. That's a huge definition. Um, but it's a, it's a greater understanding of what the gospel is. Now today, we're looking at what our lives are to be like in response to the gospel. And how, how we are truly converted. And my fear is that there are many people here that have a false assurance that they are Jesus followers. When their lives do not bear witness of that fact. And I pray for each one of us in this room that we might truly do business with God and stand in front of the mirror and ask ourselves, am I truly converted? Now the Apostle Paul says that we are to test ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. Today we are going to, in essence, do a litmus test and evaluate whether or not we truly are believers in Christ as we seek to understand what it means to be converted, to understand our state before God, before we were converted, to understand our present state as how it is now and what it should look like, as well as our future state when we are together with Him for eternity. But before we go any further, let's pray, asking God to clear away any of the, the fog or uh, the haze that keeps us from seeing the light and life of Christ as it is seen within His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do come into Your presence knowing that we are walking on holy ground, knowing that you are the sovereign God, you are the one true God. Beside you, there is no other. Still our hearts, but also awaken us to the reality of our state before you. Lord, help us to do business with you today. Help us to see who you are and what it means to truly be converted for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote this, obviously, to the church at Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he was addressing many of the issues that were confronting them. And he is now showing them in actuality what salvation um, has bought and enabled us to have, as well as how we have been changed. Now, as I, I think about our, the sermon title today, I've entitled it Amazing Grace because it's God's grace and operation that truly leads us to conversion. And I think of the, the great hymn writer, John Newton, who wrote this song and the lyrics of that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? That it's transforming, that it does truly convert the heart of a person. See, the thing we need to understand about this saving grace and that leads us to conversion uh, causes us to look back to the scriptures to see our inability before God that we can't save ourselves. Did you realize that? We can't save ourselves. This is the text in Ephesians chapter 2, shows that truly that we cannot save ourselves. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now the word dead there is nekros, and literally means corpse or body. Dead men can't respond to the overtures of Christ period. This past week, I had this unfortunately dramatically illustrated in my very front yard. For those that haven't heard yet, we had a, a, a tragic accident occur um, just on our street, in my, literally in my front yard, that there was an 84-year-old woman, two houses down, and she was backing her minivan out of uh, her driveway, and a college student was coming down the street headed to AU, and she skips and hits him right in the front, and and she she panics, and rather than hit the brake, she hits the accelerator, and she curves into our neighbor's yard and starts trying to uh, stop the minivan. Well, then next door to us, there was a a uh, man who was working, uh, by the name of Dennis, uh, working at my neighbor's house doing some uh, work in her house, and he sees this happening. So he runs to help her, and she uh, is trying to get out of her van uh, because it's not stopping. And as she's getting ready, to, she opens the door to get out. He tell her, tells her to hit the brake, and she confuses the two, hits the accelerator, and the door hits him and throws him back. In essence, she runs him over. His head hits the the, the ground, and uh, the, immediately the paramedics come. I look outside my window, and I see... Uh, Uh, police cars i see the paramedics i see fire trucks and pastor tim badall had been uh, doing something at my home and he got to the first to the scene and he's trying he sees this man seizing up his body completely frozen paralyzed and he tries to get him to respond and he cannot and the the paramedics arrive they intubate him they take him fly him to downer's grove where he uh, ends up being put on life support and he dies as a result of his injuries and there's lines, uh, the investigators have painted lines in my yard, and there's even a small pool of blood where he laid. He was a close friend and worked with uh, Ed Greenacre, um, a father, 51 years old, father of two teenage children, um, and, and stepped into eternity. And as I, I thought of Tim, and Tim was so just uh, freaked out, By holding this man, trying to to stop him from swallowing his tongue, trying to hold it back as he's seizing, we realize in some ways this is a picture of us, that we are seized up, that we cannot respond to the grace of God by ourselves. I mean, even as he's put on machines, and that's the only thing keeping him alive, and you can yell and scream at him and and call and do everything you want, and, and he can't respond. Because he's, he's dying. His brain is dead. You know, spiritually, that is the, the picture of who we are without, a, without Christ. That we can't respond to the gospel of God. That we are dead. necros. We are, we are deceased. We are unable to respond to the overtures of the grace of God. I mean, it's, and we think, we, we think that we are these good people, but the scripture shows that we are not. That we are dead. We have this inability. We are dead Spiritually. We our inability extends that way. We are dead spiritually. Now, it's interesting here, and that's what I want you to write down. We are dead spiritually. That's the first thing. We are dead spiritually, that we we are unable to respond to the grace of God without God's help. I mean, we say, oh, we have this free will to respond. No, dead men tell no tales. I'd like to share with you this, uh, From the London Baptist Confession of Faith, this was done in 1689. Uh, Spurgeon, as we're talking about him, he uh, made some adjustments to this, but he believed this. Now, this Confession of Faith is a systematic way of taking scriptural truths and putting them to succinct statements that we might uh, be under might understand very different subjects the Scripture is talking about. And in here, uh, in Part Nine, he talks about free will, and we hear people say these terms free will and reality is is uh, our free will only was truly free before the fall as he sa- as it says here uh, this free will god translates him into a state of grace this- so we have to understand then that we are dead spiritually you cannot by yourself respond to the gospel of christ we can't our will was only free before the fall after that we're bound to choose evil on our own that means we're dead spiritually speaking that's what this the wording is saying here i mean the word for trespasses in greek means transgression it the idea here it's interesting he uses two words Um, he uses a word for transgression and the words for sins parapetoma and hamartia now the parapetoma means transgression a fall away after being close beside. In other words, a lap or deviation from the truth. An error, a slip up, a wrongdoing That can be relatively unconscious or even non-deliberate. But then you have the word hamartia; It's missing the mark. Meaning that we tried and didn't make it. This was more deliberate. So you have non-deliberate and very deliberate. And he's saying that we are dead in these sins. That we cannot respond to the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ apart from God. Now, what does this mean? I mean, it, it, he, he wants to elaborate and show us how bad we really were. Now, notice that Paul describes us as, look at verse 2, in which he once walked following the course of this world. See, Paul is describing those who follow this worldly system, the idea of walked. Whenever you see the word walked in the New Testament, it's the idea of conducting one's life and that we walked according to the course of this world, meaning that we followed, and we believed, and we adhered to, and we celebrated the things that this world loves and celebrates, which is against the gospel of God. As we've said before, and we give a short definition of the world as this, the world is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. The world is anything that makes sin look normal. That it's okay, and everybody's doing it, and it's fine, but makes righteousness looks, looks strange and foreign and weird and against the grain. And it's because it is. The righteousness of God does not jive with the wickedness of, this, of man or this fallen world. And he's saying that we once walked, we once celebrated it, we loved it, we were morally corrupt and wicked. The idea is, is we were not just dead spiritually, but we were depraved in our disposition. That's what our inability shows, that we were dead spiritually and that we were depraved in our disposition. We may not have realized it, but we were. We may not have been guilty of, of many of the more obvious or overt sins, especially those who grew up within the church. But we, we might be, have been guilty or probably have been guilty of the more subtle and uh, dangerous of sin, such as self-righteousness and pride. Even in our supposed goodness, we were actually very, very wicked. Notice the next phrase in verse 2. Sons of disobedience. Now skip down to verse 3. Were by nature children of wrath. Now the word sons of disobedience is a Hebraic, meaning Hebrew, expression that literally uh, refers to a a child who's Chief characteristic is being disobedient. Do you know any children whose chief characteristic is disobedience? Please don't say Elijah. Okay? But we all know people that have children that are just disobedient. And you look at that child, and what do you want to do to them? When they're disrespectful to adults, when they don't listen, when they disrespect you, then they, naturally the progression becomes they are destined to be children of wrath. And that's what the text says here. That they have, we were by nature children of wrath. Literally means children destined for wrath. It's not talking about someone else's child. This is talking about us. That we, apart from Christ, were disobedient children. Disobedient children. Now, we also can see, look at verse 3. Uh, among whom we all once lived... Lived in the passion of our flesh, the desires, the passions. Of we did whatever we wanted to do, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Whatever we wanted to do, we did. If it felt good, we did it. And we still do, many of us, especially those who are unredeemed. See, the idea here is we're doing our own thing, we're doing our own thing. Now, I've been reminded of this recently, especially within the news. It's gotten out of control how much people want to do their own thing. Just take, for example, um, Bethany Paquette. I'm not sure if you've heard about her, but she was in uh, a student, a graduate of Trinity Western University in Canada. She applied for a job with a Norwegian wilderness company in Canada, and uh, they refused her because of her faith in the fact that she graduated from Trinity Western. And this is what the man who is in charge of hiring, he said this to her. Unlike Trinity Western University, we embrace diversity and the right of people to sleep with or marry whoever they want. He continues. In asking students to refrain from same-sex relationships, Trinity Western University and any person associated with it has engaged in discrimination. Now, she gave a very reasonable, I believe, reply, noting that 70% of the population in Canada still stands against gay marriage, and then she signed it, God bless. He responded to her message saying, God bless is very offensive to me, and yet another sign of your attempts to impose your religious views on me. I do not want to be blessed by some guy who had been the very reason for the most horrendous abuses and human rights violations in the history of the human race. He then on used an expletive to state that if he met God, he would have sexual relationships with him. Now, apparently, this guy, he's, he celebrates Norse history. He missed much of Viking history because of their con- conquering, raiding, and pillaging. Uh, but he is simply describing and decrying a life without God. And he's not alone. Considering, consider the woman who, uh, this past, actually last month, wrote an article about her husband, who had left their marriage and engaged in a gay relationship and decided to get married and then sued for custody of the children. And the judge gave it to him because he was gay. And he felt like it was a he would have given it. He even said, because your civil rights have been violated in the past, you now can have the children. You wanted more, you could have it. So the children are taken away against their will from their mother. And then these two guys have a marriage that the children are forced to attend. And the mother didn't even know was occurring. And they are then put in front of all these TV cameras in a state that didn't recognize any of this, saying that this is a quote-unquote normal family. And she says, this family is built on the ruins of mine and is destroying it. And they're in an open marriage, meaning they can do whatever they want with whomever they want. And let me tell you right now, I know that people don't like this. It's a form of child abuse. There are individuals that are speaking that have grown up in households like that, suing their parents because they weren't had, allowed to see what a normal man and what a normal woman looked like. It's a form of child abuse. And this is getting out of control. I mean, or consider also the MMA fighter who came out and uh, was celebrated was a man, felt that like he was a woman, got a sex change and breast implants, steps into the ring with with another woman, busts her face up completely and is celebrated as a hero. Beating up a woman is being a hero. He's even been inaugurated into the Gay Lesbian Sports Hall of Fame. And it's interesting, even now, secular psychiatrists, one of the former heads of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University has declared and says all psychiatrists believe that, that people that are transgendered have a mental illness. And yet, people are catering to this. Just this past week, a middle school in Nebraska sent out a memo to the teachers saying that they couldn't call boys and girls boys and girls, but had to call them purple penguins. What? I mean, it's funny. Unfortunately, it's it's real. This is real. This is where our world is headed. It's gotten so bad now that, that people are trying. We have this androgynous population where people are neither male nor female. As a matter of fact, even the American Breastfeeding Association used to have language in their, their books saying that breastfeeding was a right of women. And this one woman who became a man and then got pregnant, they're saying then that, that now because this man can breastfeed, that men can breastfeed as well. It's just stupid. How dumb. Do we have to be as a culture before God takes us out? But we see that our world is doing whatever it wants to do. If it feels good, then we can do it. Or the 29-year-old woman who has a terminal illness decides to move to Oregon so she can just take her life. And she says, it's not suicide. It's not, don't call it that. Well, it is. You can't just change definitions. And people are celebrating it. And people are saying, you don't have the right, you don't know, you're not in it. Let me tell you, there's another woman who wrote back who's in the middle of it and says it is suicide. See, our culture has become to the point now where we do whatever we want to do and no one can say boo about it. We can watch whatever we want, we can go whatever we want, we can sleep with whoever we want. And that's what God says is part of the unconverted world. That apart from Christ, we are doomed. Doomed. That's the next thing that we need to understand. We're doomed. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to look at our world and go, we're doomed. We are doomed. Like the rest of mankind, verse 4. That's where we see that we are doomed like everybody else. This world is doomed. It's doomed to end. It's not going to get better. Now, Now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek to do good things or tell people about Jesus. It doesn't mean we withdraw completely from society. But it doesn't mean that we have to stop thinking that everything's going to be okay cuz it's not. In fact, look at the next phrase. God says that we were really following the prince of the power of the air. Now that's referring to the devil. That's referring to the devil. That's saying that we were followers of the devil and people might say, "Hey, Travis, that's a little harsh." I'm not a follower of the devil. I'm just doing my own thing. Whatever you want to believe is just fine. Do you know that the Bible says there are no spiritual Switzerlands? That you can't remain neutral? That you're either a follower of Jesus or you're not, you're a follower of the devil? People might say, well, I'm going to be neutral. Then you are ca- I'm not going to vote for any of the candidates. I want a third-party candidate. People, are, That's what it's looking at. We have a two-party system, basically, in the United States. We have the Libertarian and the Green Party and all these other parties. In God's election, there are only two candidates. And to say that you're not voting is to put a vote for Satan. To abstain is putting a vote for the evil one. It says that we're followers of the devil. And see, the devil is completely fine, by the way, with you being moral. He could care less. As long as he's got you, he doesn't care how he's got you. I mean, one of the most deceptive faiths is Mormonism. You know why? Because it looks and sounds like Christianity. And it's got a lot of people that are very moral in it. But it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a different Jesus. But he's fine with them being moral, with talking about family, with doing all of these wonderful things, as long as they don't turn to Jesus, the real biblical Jesus. See, this is how bad we were. That's the bad news. And I know we hear bad news all the time, and I'd like to move on from the bad news to the good news. We need to look back. Look back at verse 4. I love this. Just two words. But God. Two of the greatest words in the English language. But God. Meaning that we we were lost. But God. But God. That he intervened. That he saw us in the midst of it. That He came to our aid. That He saw us where we were. But God. We see God's intervention. See, we have to understand that He gave us grace and merited favor. He gave us mercy, which was withholding what we deserved because of what Jesus had done. See, one cannot respond to salvation without God awakening, awakening them to their need of Jesus Christ. See, there are two thoughts on how salvation occurs for Christians. The two views, and I'm going to give you big terms here. This is not on the board. One is called synergism, the idea of synergo, uh, and, or sin, which is uh, S-Y-N, two together. Ergo, which is work, two parties working together to bring about our salvation. And, I, and, and the way it can be illustrated is this, is that you were floating in the sea, God throws you a raft, a preserver, you have to grab it, and then God brings you to freedom. That's synergism. The idea of man's will and God's will cooperating together for salvation. The other word is monergism, mono meaning one, ergo, which is the the root word there, means work. It's the work of one. And the way that biblically we see illustrated here is that we weren't floating in the ocean, we were at the bottom of the ocean, dead. God jumped in, breathed into us life, and then brought us to salvation. So you have synergism and monergism. It's saying here that God intervened, that he awoken us to the reality of who he is. He's the one who drew us to himself. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, uh, especially if you have a pew Bible, to page 892. That's John chapter 6, verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 44. And I'm going to give you a few different verses in this section that help show us the reality of our state before God. John chapter 6, verse 44, this is Jesus speaking, and He says, No one can come to Me, no one, no one, without, no one without exception can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. No one, no one, no one can come to God on their own. You can't just decide to believe and follow Jesus one day. God revealed Himself to you in His grace and His mercy. He drew you to Himself. Now turn with me to Titus chapter three. Titus chapter three—that's page nine ninety-eight, nine ninety-eight. Titus chapter three. It's just a uh, not too far over. John, keep going. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. Paul is writing by the Spirit and says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy... By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, he might become, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who is the person operating in this? Who is the one who regenerated us? Who is the one that reached down to save us? Who is the one that drew us? That's God! God! God awakens our will to respond to the glory of the gospel of Christ. As the London Baptist Confession states it, says it this way, an effectual calling, meaning God has called us. He says, those whom God has predestinated to life. That's a big word. The idea is God has chosen us. He destined us to be his children, not because of anything that we have done. He is pleased and has appointed an accepted time to effectually call by his word and spirit meaning that his word has awakened us to the reality of who we are because faith comes by hearing hearing through the word of christ the the word of god provokes our lost condition and god gives us uh opens our will to respond after we have been regenerated then we repent this is called the ordo salutis in latin which means the the order of salvation how it happens he is pleased and has appointed an accepted, accepted time to effectually, meaning that it is going to move us, call by His Word and Spirit out of the state of sin, we were state of sin and death, which they are in by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power causes them, us, to desire and pursue that which is good. He effectually draws them to Jesus Christ, yet in such a way that they come absolutely freely, being made made willing by his grace. So it's a little bit like this. We get the picture of the the Valley of Dry Bones, if you've ever read the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel starts prophesying to this Valley of Dry Bones. And as he prophesies, what happens? There's a rattling. There's a rattling occurs, and the bones come together, and then muscle, and then sinew, and then, then skin. And it's, what's, it's a picture of what the Word of God does to us. Now, he's speaking in that context to the nation of Israel how they were dead, but it's also showing us how dead we were until the Word of God came, and God gave us life and brought us together and awoken us to the reality of our condition apart from Christ. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. We can't perform our own heart surgery. It's impossible that God then awakens our will to respond. We see our need of a Savior. He's regenerated us to believe and place our faith in Him. And it is entirely of grace. God intervenes. So how does He do this? He converts us. He awakens us. Now, what is conversion? According to theologian Wayne Grudem, this is conversion. Here's a good definition if you want to write this down. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Conversion is our willing response. The idea is is that God has awakened us to our need and then we respond. He has regenerated our wills to understand and comprehend. Well, people say, I still have free will. You don't have free will to believe in something you've never heard. To, you, you don't have the ability to understand it apart from Christ making you understand it. That itself is a gift. The, even faith itself to believe is a gift of God. What have you that you did not receive, as Paul says? Now, I understand we're in some very deep theological waters, but this is extremely important for us as members of the body of Christ to understand how God works Because God transforms our hearts and minds. And if you're not transformed and you're not desiring the things of God, I think you're damned. Because I don't think that you have truly been regenerated to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the word of God. And I I don't say that as a a be a jerk. I'm saying it because I genuinely fear for your soul. That we play around with God and we think we can give God scraps and we can't do that. We think I'm just fine. I have the spiritual insurance fire insurance policy. I sign my name with the sinner's prayer. No. It's the understanding of being awakened to the reality of your lost condition and then God placing his desires within you that you desire the things of God. Now that doesn't mean we don't sin. Doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with sin, but it does mean that we're not going to live in a state of sin. And if you're living in a state of sin, then you're damned. According to the Word of God. You are lost. Because you have not yet understood the gospel of Christ. See, God intervened in verse 4. Look, we see how He intervened. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. God intervened by loving us. Loving us. God loves us. He loves us. Have you ever felt the freedom of feeling unconditional love? freeing. The kind of love that transforms a person. The kind of love that shows that we are treasured. That we matter. That God cares for us despite our sin. That while we were still yet sinners Christ died for us. That he saw us in our previous condition. That he would choose to die for us. He loves us and he gives us life he intervened by giving by loving us and by giving us life. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, quickened us, woken us to the reality of who he is by grace. This gift, this unmerited favor, you have been saved. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 11 verse 18. Page 920. Acts chapter 11 verse 18. This is an example of this being played out. When they had heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, who granted the repentance? Did we repent on our own apart from Christ? No. That God granted the repentance that leads to life. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. That's page 1011 if you have a pew Bible. James chapter 1. It's in the latter part of your Bible in the New Testament. Um, near the end. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. So in James chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we are to live out this life now, that he has made available to us. So we understand that he intervened by loving us, by lavishing us with this love when we didn't deserve it, by lifting us from the but giving us life and now lifting us from the abyss. Look at that phrase right there, he raised us up with him He raised us from our natural state, which is a fallen state, by his resurrection from the dead. This is why when we preach the gospel, we have to understand that it was cru- involved the crucifixion, death, and the resurrection because we were raised with him. We were united with him now someone said for when did, when did Christ die I had that question presented to me this morning. He died some two thousand years ago, but his death is appropriated to us when we place our faith in Christ, because God has granted us to have that faith, and then his death is appropriated as our own, Galatians 2.20, for it is by, uh, excuse me, for I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, and the life I live I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. So the idea is, is that I I am appropriated into the death of Christ, I'm also appropriated into the resurrection of Christ, because I have been raised now with him. I've been united with Him. He has lifted us, grabbed us by our shirt collar, and lifted us from the abyss to save us. He lifted us from the abyss. He raised us up with Him. We were lost. We didn't realize how lost we were, but He intervened also by linking us together with Him. Linking us together with Him. Look at verse 6 and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That He has raised us and seated us, thus linking us together with Him, and the salvation that has been accomplished, we are forever connected with Christ. What He has, we receive. And where are we seated? In the heavenly places where Jesus is. We're already connected by faith to Christ. Now, that's not all. Look at verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated him in the, us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The understanding is that God will lavish us with unbelievable riches. Lavish us. We are with the Lord at the end of time. He will show us his glory and give us immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness us. Us in Christ. Now, it's interesting. The words that he, the words he might show mean to demonstrate, to display, to put on display, to show, to prove. In, um, in ancient documents, it had a quasi-legal sense of proving a petition or charge or of proving that charge was wrong. See, what God is showing then is he's going to demonstrate to all of the world that we are followers of him and that he was right in everything that he did and declared. Everything will be validated then. That He will lavish us with unbelievable riches to anoint our heads with oil in the presence of our enemies, as it says in the book of Psalms. I'm using that slightly out of context, but the idea is, is that God's going to show us off. Show us off. For and not because of who we are, but because of what He has done. So what we see here then is that our salvation is an accomplished fact and that we were chosen and put together in Christ. It's a present experience that we were living out every day and it's a future act that will find its completion when we are freed from the very presence of sin at the end of time. Did you get all that? The idea is, is we've been saved in Christ, we are being saved, and we will be forever saved and freed from the very presence of sin in eternity future. That the the complete aspect and fullness of our salvation will be seen. See, when we are saved from our past sin, the moment we place our faith in Christ, that our sin has been forgiven. But we are also saved from the power of sin presently, that we don't have to give in to our sinful desires anymore. And then in the future, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin, and that we will no longer experience it, and our wills will be completely free to choose the spiritual good that God has chosen for us. Now, I know that I've given you a ton of theological truth today. You might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. But it's true. All of what I'm telling you is true. These are deep waters that show exactly what God has done for us. Now, look at verse 10 with me. See, we didn't work our way to God. Our works do not save us. doesn't matter how much we... We, uh, and you see this in different religions where they beat themselves, where they, they do everything to, to get themselves into heaven, um, work their way. But here we see that, no, we cannot, for we are His workmanship created in Christ for good works. Not, we weren't created in Christ uh, by our good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. The word in Greek is poema. It refers to that which is made, a work, a work of art, especially a poetic product. We understand then that we are God's poem. God has created you to be his masterpiece. Thought about that? You guys are masterpieces. I say that when I look in the mirror. My wife and children laugh at me. But the reality, it's very true. We are God's masterpiece, that God with his so eloquent brush, is working and preparing in you to be seen and put on display for the world to see who Jesus is. You know, you look at some of the paintings of Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. and it's, I, I was reading da Vinci's biography some time ago and there was one piece of, one painting that he would come and he would stare at for hours and he would pick up his brush and put one stroke and he would walk away for several days. He was such an artist. But each time he would put a stroke, it would start to bring that portrait into great depth. And even now, art students look and study works like uh, da Vinci or Michelangelo or Renoir or Monet or Manet or Cézanne. And they look at them and they study just how wonderful and how beautiful that they construct these brilliant pieces of art. And you know that they, though they are valuable and in museums and put on display, for all to see that you are infinitely infinitely more valuable than those. You are greater than any of those works of art. That God has created you to be put on display to show His greatness. For God, we are God's workmanship workmanship. So then, we see here that God then has saved us. He's lavished us with riches. We say, well, what do we do with this? I want us to not look just at God's intervention. I want us to look from our perspective, because I've been giving you a heavenly perspective. I now want to show you from our perspective that we have God's invitation before us. What do we do with all this truth? Well, it's an invitation for our souls. What do we do? What do we do with the truth of what God has shown unto us? See, God invites us to a new dependence. To a new dependence. Look at verse 8 with me. One of the most popular and most memorized verses in all of Scripture. I would encourage you, if you want to memorize Scripture starting off, this is one of the first ones you should memorize. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. Excuse me. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. When we realize that God is the author of salvation from beginning to end, that we, what we have is entirely of grace and His benevolent and kind will, we have no choice but to depend on Him, to rely on Him, to cease from trying to work. I was reading this past week, in the, the Old Testament, reading one of, the, one of the hardest passages in Scripture to understand where there was one man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. If you've ever read the Old Testament, this is quite a jarring picture for us in 21st century of America. But he was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, something that was forbidden to do. And he then is arrested. He's brought before Moses. And they said, what must we do? And God says, stone him. Now, for, uh, the, again, for those of us in the modern era, that seems to be such a severe penalty. But the reality is the Sabbath was created to be and to point to the rest that we were to have in our salvation of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And, when, and it's a picture of him then working his way to God and not trusting in that rest. So it's a serious violation of, the, of God's provision of salvation in the future. So we see here that we can't depend on our own works and shouldn't even try, but yet we are created to do good works, not be saved by them, but to show that we have been saved by faith, and the reality of our relationship with God is then seen in our dependence on Him and what we then do for Him. See, God has declared that we are accepted because of Christ. All that's been, ra- been made right because of Him, now, I'm reminded, I've shared this story in the past, a story told of Ernest, that Ernest Hemingway wrote about really what grace is and what this dependence looks like and how we have new life in Christ, and he illustrates it in a different way. He tells the story of a Spanish father in, in Spain uh, who decides to reconcile with his son who had run away to Madrid. He's now remorseful, and this father takes out an ad in the El Liberal newspaper. It says this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Now Paco is a common name in Spain. And when the father goes to the square, he finds 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers. See, it's an echo of grace that we all need grace. We all need to recognize our dependence that God has provided us with that in Christ. We need to depend on that, to bathe in it, to recognize the grace that He has made available in and through Christ, that He has paid for our sins and enabled us to have new life in Him. God gives us and invites us to a new dependence and to a new destination. To a new destination that we have been raised with Christ. We need to set our minds on Christ And realize that this world is not our home. We must live our lives to the realization that heaven is our home. Our citizenship is there. We need to live and act like we are citizens of that heavenly place. There's also the invitation to new desires. To new desires. God has created us to do good works. We have a desire to live for him. To see his name being glorified. That's what Spurgeon was talking about at the beginning of my message. We're to have a desire to see his name proclaimed and a desire to tell other people. Now, I want to share this last quote with you that is an indictment, I think, to us all. It's by Spurgeon, and he talks about how not just that we've been created in good works, but we have a desire, should have a desire to tell other people about who Jesus is. He says, the spirit of proselytizing, it's supposed to be proselytizing, not proselytizing, but is the spirit of Christianity. And we ought to be desirous of possessing it. If any man will say, I believe such and such a thing is true, but I do not wish no one, anyone else to believe it, I will tell you it's a lie. He does not believe it, for it is impossible heartily and really to believe a thing without desiring to make others believe the same. And I am sure of this, moreover. It is impossible to know the value of salvation without desiring to see others brought in. Said that renowned preacher, George Whitfield, as soon as I was converted, I wanted the means of the conversion of all that I had ever known. There were a number of young men that I had played cards with, that I had sinned with, that I had transgressed with. And the first thing I did was to go to their houses to see what I could do for their salvation. Nor could I rest until I had the pleasure of seeing many of them brought to the Savior. This is the first fruit of the Spirit. It is a kind of instinct in a young Christian. He must have other people feel what he feels. So let me ask you the question Do you feel that desire in your heart? If you don't, I do question your salvation. You need to do business with God, you need to plead for the mercy of God. I don't want you to have a false assurance of faith that you were saved because of your baptism, that you're saved because you became a member of a church, that you're saved because you went to a Bible study or that you gave. I don't want you to think you're saved because of any of those things, except. By the knowledge and awareness of what Christ has done for you and having trusted in that truth. Says one man, in writing to me this week, this is what Spurgeon went on to say I've been praying for my fellow clerk in the office. I have desired that he be brought to the Savior, but at present there is no answer to my prayers. Spurgeon says, Do not give a penny for that man's piety which will not spread itself unless we desire others to taste the benefits we have enjoyed. We are either inhuman monsters or outrageous hypocrites. I think the last is most likely. God forgive us for not living out the reality of our conversion by going through the motions. See, God gives us new desires. He also gives us a new direction. Direction. We're to walk in them. That's what He says. That we are to walk in them. The idea is we conduct our life in good works, in living out the reality of our walk with Jesus. Though our salvation is entirely of God's grace, it is this same grace by which we are converted. It is grace, this unmerited favor by which we stand. It is by grace that will lead us home as the great hymn ends. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. It is grace that brought me safe thus far. In grace god's grace that precious precious grace that will lead me home let's pray father i cannot help but feel that there are some in our midst that need to do business with you that they have a false sense of conversion that they believe that they have a moral life that they are okay with you lord awaken them to the reality of their condition their self-righteousness their pride lord do that to us all Awaken us to anything that is keeping us from truly seeing, comprehending, and apprehending the grace of God that has been made available in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we see your holiness. May we see your mercy. May we see the greatness, the depth, and the immensity of your love unto us. And may our tongues and our lives be great demonstrations and displays Of the greatness of your glory as the gospel is made to be known and seen within the very fabric of our lives. So, Lord, may our tongues be quickened. May our hearts be made sharp. May the Holy Spirit press upon us the reality of who you are. And may those of us who are unredeemed do business with you. May those of us who are lost in sin be awakened. For those of us who have began to live in the middle of sin, we've allowed the sin to creep back into our lives, place such a conviction upon our souls that we cannot rest until we are made right with you. Lord, may we live out the reality of this gospel call and truth of this amazing grace in our lives, that your name might receive glory, that we might grow and experience unbelievable, uncomprehendable joy thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.